Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Aaron Badgley, who is here to discuss his book, Dark Horse, the story of George Harrison's post-Beatles record label. As Apple winds down, George starts his own label in 1974 and releases music by new artists and old friends and some of his best solo material. Aaron tells the story of this very bunch of artists and we find out why the label wasn't quite the success that Harrison had hoped for. Aaron Badgley, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm really well, thank you very much. And how are you, sir? I'm incredibly well. I'm really looking forward to talk to you today about your book, Dark Horse Records, the story of George Harrison's post-Beatles record label. Dark Horse Records is one of those things that lots of Beatles fans know existed but that's about where their knowledge ends and your book is brilliant at telling us a bit about the story of the label and the acts that appeared on it so what was it that led you to start this project what was it about George's label that that enticed you well you know there's books about Apple and there's books about different aspects of the Beatles and they never covered I've read so many books on Harrison and sometimes there's a bit of a gap between material world and cloud nine. And um, there was a lot of good stuff in that period. And, and I just felt that the label deserved and the artists on the label deserved to be, you know, given some exposure and talk about, because I, I I think Harrison had every right to be proud of that label and still does. And uh, it's an interesting story too, because it, it wouldn't have happened if Apple hadn't kind of collapsed. Right. So yeah, I just thought it was a story that should be told and maybe someone find it. I mean, I've always found labels interesting. Hmm. So, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to do a book about Ringo Records, but that was not very long lasting. You mentioned Apple there. Apple, obviously, there was difficulties, there was headaches, there was stress for all, all four Beatles and those around them. What do you think, what inspired George, do you think, to start this label in the first place after that maybe negative experience? Well, I think he learned from it. I think he he was he went into Dark Horse with the idea of it being very small, not a huge roster. And it started because he wanted to sign Splinter to Apple Records. But Apple was in such disarray by seven. This is 1973. Mal Evans was kind of working as a scout for Apple. And Harrison really liked what he heard. And then they, they were used in a film that Harrison was financing. And he thought, this would be great. They're in the film. We can promote the film. The film can promote the record. You know, that kind of stuff. And then him and Ringo had a conversation about buying out Apple and having it just owned by the two of them. But that produced an, an enormous amount of headaches. So Harrison decided to form his own label. I think he he really wanted to help artists. And if you look at Harrison's history, from 1968 on, he helps us like a heck of a bunch of people. He's very generous with his time. Mm. So that I think that's why he, and I think he honestly thought, keep it small, headaches gone, and maybe no Alan Klein. <laughs> so you, again, you mentioned him there, when books do look at the Dark Horse record label, Splinter are the band that most books cover. They're probably the best known band that were on the label. It's good if we start with with talking a little bit about them. Tell us a little bit about about their history and about how they formed. Well, they they came out of Newcastle, and they were a duo that came. I guess they sent a tape to Apple Records. You know, a lot of people were still sending stuff to Apple well into the seventies. And if you you know, there's a lot of signings. Chris Hodge was signed, and David Peel, Elephant's Memory. They were a band called Half Breed, which they quite wisely changed <laughs> to Spencer. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a terrible name. Always the duo, Rob Purvis and Bill Elliott. And Mel Evans really championed them. And Mel, Mel really liked what he heard. And don't forget, Mel had just come off producing Bad Fingers, no matter what single. And he took it to the attention of the Beatles. John actually used Bill Elliott of Splinter on a song called God Save Us as the Elastic Oz Band. And John loved his voice. Harrison liked what he heard, too. I think Harrison heard a kind of a similar Bad Finger vibe to what was going on. So they came out of Northern England, and they were part of that whole big British folk revival that happened in the 70s. And there were so many great bands. They weren't topping the charts, but they were certainly getting recognized. And although they weren't topping the charts, Steel Ice Band maybe didn't go to number one, but they had a very solid following. The Straubs were kind of folky at points and all that kind of stuff. So it, it made good sense to kind of sign a band, a duo. They weren't expensive to record or tour. I mean, when they tour, it was them and a guitar. So, yeah, that's where they came to the attention. And as I said, George really wanted to sign them to Apple. This first single was supposed to be Lonely Man, but it ended up being shelved till their second album, which is kind of a mystery to this day. But And I tried to find out. I talked to Bill Elliott about that, and he was flummoxed. He's like, I have no idea. I, he, he assumed it would be the second single after um, Costa Fine Town. But things happen, right? You mentioned, obviously, having spoken to them. What was the experience like for them did you get a sense of being on Dark Horse? What kind of label was it? What kind of boss was George? Well, it was a blessing and a curse. So the blessing was that George was a great boss, very encouraging. He worked diligently on that album for 17 months. I mean, he really put his heart and soul, played numerous instruments. He said that Harrison, they, they lived at Harrison's house. He was more than generous for all three of their albums. The curse was that they felt that because Harrison was helping them, a lot of people kind of said, well, we're not going to play you. You're only getting played because you're with George, which wasn't the case at all. But so it, it was a mixed blessing. But they said working with George was an absolute treat, a treasure until the third album. That's where things kind of fell apart. And Harrison wanted them to be big and they were doing a lot. They just couldn't get a second hit single after Costa Fine Town. And, and again, you know, you've heard the album, and and it's a mystery because there's, you know, Drink All Day should have been a hit or China China Light things like that. But what do you think was the main reason then for them not outside of those influences and that kind of bit of prejudice, maybe because they were associated with George? Do you think musically they sat in the right place for that mid seventies period? Well, I I know that in England there was concern about the second single, Drink All Day, because that got banned because of the use of the word bloody, which is so funny today. You think, wow, that earned them a ban on the BBC. <laughs> so they quickly flipped the single over and, and tried to promote it that way. But it's a dice throw, right? Because if you listen to the album, the first track, Gravy Train, is almost disco. Hmm. And maybe that could have been a good second single to kind of take them, not pigeonhole them as that folky band from Northern England. I don't know. Like, they, they had a very strong following. And when you read the reviews for their singles and album, the, the critics are saying, this will be huge, this will be huge. Now, over in North America, um, Costa Fine Town did much better in Canada than it did in the U.S. And that's, I think, because of we're more influenced at that time by the by the British market than we were by the U.S. But even then, they couldn't kind of pull a second single. And I, I think you're right. I think that they got slotted into this one niche. And they, they were much more than that. And given what was popular at the time, you would think that they could have capitalized on that. And it was by by no means the fault of Harrison or, or A&M Records, who they, were, they really did promote the album, like mm. God, you know. 
And I, I guess that ad didn't help them where it was like, I don't know if, if you've seen, I think it's in the book where it's like, here's the band and the producer, there's George Splinter. I think George is trying to help them, but I think it kind of was like, really? You know? Yeah. Moving on from to look at some of the other acts that are on Dark Horse, one of the bands that I wasn't aware of at all until I read your book was Jeeva. Tell us a little bit about them. How did they become in, involved with Dark Horse? Well, Jeeva came to George's attention through Olivia. She was friends with the band prior to being with George. And Olivia, by the way, worked at A&M Records, who distributed Dark Horse. And George and her had a relationship over the phone, and they kind of became really good friends. And then that led to a, a deeper relationship. And she brought them to George's attention. And George liked the fact that they were a four-piece, very similar to the Beatles, in that they were self-contained and they, you know, they had a good solid sound. Again, Harrison helped them by getting them on a Fleetwood Mac tour, which was pretty phenomenal. But by the time Jeeva's album had come out, unfortunately, things had been falling apart with AM and Harrison was kind of leaning towards Warner Brothers. Everyone on Dark Horse came to George with maybe one exception, but like the stair steps came to George through Billy Preston, Splinter through Mal Evans, Ravi Shankar, of course, is George's friend. Henry McCulloch was the interesting one because he was the guitarist for Wings. <laughs> goes solo and he signs to George's label, which I'm sure McCartney must have found either amusing or frustrating. I don't yeah. know. They all kind of came with a bit of a pedigree that Harrison kind of... Now, the Attitudes was a different whole situation. They That was Jim Keltner because he was in the band and George, of course, big fan of Jim Keltner. In fact, if you look on the back of um, Living in the Material World album, there's a, an ad saying the Jim Keltner fan club sent a stamped undressed elephant that was, of course, Harrison being cheeky because of McCartney's Red Rose Speedway album and the Wings Fun Club on the back. But uh, he was a big fan of Keltner. And Keltner, I'm, I'm digressing from Jeeva, I'm sorry, but Keltner, Keltner said that Harrison was mad that he never came to Harrison with his band. Harrison kind of found out about it later. He said, why didn't you come to me? Like, Because mm -hmm. Keltner didn't want to use that friendship. But, but Jeeva was an interesting band, and I've got to talk to three of the four members and they, again, their experience with Harrison was great that he he basically said, do what you like. Now, Harrison had final say as to singles. And the funny story with, with Jeeva was the title of their single, Something's Going On Inside L.A., but it, there's it's missing a comma. <laughs> and the lead singer was always, there should have been something's going on, comma. So, yeah, they, 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 they appreciated Harrison's help. And, again, through Harrison, Gary Wright plays on the album. Good album, solid album. It should have been bigger than given the music at the time. They, they should have been bigger in the States than they would have been in England. Um, because I guess in England, punk was starting to happen and, and all that. But given the LA sound, you would think that um, they would have done well. And maybe, maybe if AM hadn't pulled out the way they did, maybe they would have done a lot better. For those that haven't heard them, how would you describe that that album and their sound? I would describe it as as easy rock, soulish, jazzy rock. But a bit of an edge, you know, mm. it's straight ahead rock and roll combo, you know, and it's, again, a very lovely album, well produced. It's been recently, I think you can stream it on iTunes now and you, and you listen to it, you go, well, it's not a bad album. It gets, not every track's a winner, mm. but it's a solid enough album. Um, although the British press just gave a terrible reviews, <laughs> Record Mirror in particular were not kind. <laughs> right. Was there a reason for that, do you think? Was it was that a similar thing, do you think, of being associated with George, who, of course, at this point, isn't massively popular himself? That's right. Well, that's a good point, right? And Harrison's sound had changed. 
Because if you listen to Harrison's records in the late 70s compared to All Things Must Pass, very different sound. He was very influenced by people like Ry Cooter and, and the uh, California sound. Jeeva's very California. It's like Jackson Brown. And, and I, I'm not knocking anyone, but at that point, that, that kind of music wasn't really in vogue. In I mean, the Eagles were big in England, but elsewise, they were kind of like, they had their own healthy scene going on there. Uh, but I do think the... Um, you know, they saw the Dark Horse label in, in the UK and Europe, and it was a bit of a, it's weird, eh? Because you would think that it would be the opposite. But in fact, I think it did cause a bit of friction with some critics and, and certainly didn't get any airtime in, in the UK anywhere, really, for that matter. But You mentioned him earlier, George's great friend, mentor, father figure, Ravi Shankar. He released two albums uh, on Dark Horse in the mid-70s. Tell us a little bit about those albums and how successful they were or, or not. Successful. Um, I, I tell the funny, in the book, there's a kind of an amusing, I was talking to Derek Green. He was from A&M Records and he was responsible to promote Dark Horse. And he said that George invited him over and played in music festival from India and said, how, how are we going to sell this? And he was like, hmm, how are we going to sell this? <laughs> <laughs> he said, with great difficulty. You know, the Shankar Family and Friends was the first album released on Dark Horse, and that was recorded while Ringo was recording his Ringo album in Los Angeles. So a lot of the players on the Ringo album happened to be on Shankar Family and Friends, including an incredible musician, Tom Scott. And uh, Ringo's on it, Billy Preston, plus the Indian musicians from Ravi's uh, orchestra. And in terms of success, it's a lovely album. Again, the single, I Am Missing You, is a beautiful melody. I, I was actually surprised that it didn't do well. It got airtime in Canada regionally, but it didn't really take off. Harrison honestly thought that this record, if you listen to interviews at the time, Harrison's basically saying this is going to be huge and it's Ravi doing pop and he should do more pop. But see, this is before world music. And, and Harrison was, of course, given the uh, Billboard Award and credited for starting world music. And I, I don't think it's unfounded. I think that Again, Harrison thought, I love this music. I hear the beauty in it. I think others can too. The second album was actually recorded prior to the first album, which again, is that, that kind of confusing thing. The second one's a bit more traditional classical Indian music. Again, beautiful. But the interesting thing is that in Harrison's life, those are the only two Dark Horse albums that he actually reissued on Compact Disc when the Compact Disc started happening. Nothing else on, on Dark Horse other than his own solo albums was reissued. He obviously loved these albums. He obviously thought the world of them. And then when he did the third album, Chance of India with Ravi, which should have been on Dark Horse, uh, it is now. I applaud Danny for doing that because it's a it, it is part three of a trilogy. Mm. And uh, But I think they're successful in what they set out to do. Commercially, again, here's Harrison taking Ravi on tour of America, the first solo Beatle to tour America. 1974, and Ravi's part of this whole music thing, which was really cool. I mean, Peter Gabriel would do it later with Womad, but here's Harrison doing it first. And and um, I talked to one person who saw the show here in Toronto, and he said that Ravi was really well received. But when you walk down the street to Sam the Record Man, which was the big store in Toronto, Harrison's album was front rack, but Shankar Family and Friends, you kind of had to dig for it, you mm. know? Because mm. it's I think it's a great album. I listen to it. It's, quite a bit still and it stands up and it got great reviews by the way 
it made me smile. Cashbox, which was the big American magazine next to Billboard, actually says that this album should be played on FM. It could be a hit. People heard something. Critics certainly heard something. Harrison did. But they're great albums. What was the working relationship with George and Ravi like? Did you get a sense of that over the course of this period? Yeah, I, talk, I spoke to some members of his orchestra, and, and George was in awe of Ravi. And his way of producing Ravi was different than producing, say, Splinter. Ravi knew what he was doing. I, I don't think anyone needed to tell Ravi what to do. I think what Harrison did was maybe polish the sound a bit and make it more accessible for people. But it was a great working relationship. Uh, the tour was very, you know, they, they got along. All the musicians got along on the tour. Ravi loved the tour with George. You said something earlier, so kind of a father figure, mentor. Mm. George really looked up to Ravi Shankar, and, and um, it, it was a beautiful relationship. And and working together never harmed the relationship, my sense. They, they, they stayed solid, solid friends. I think Ravi appreciated Harrison's efforts. Although, of course, sadly, Ravi on the tour, he had... Uh... It wasn't a heart attack, was it? But it was a bit of a health scare on that tour. Well, they worried it was a heart attack, and it, it turned out not to be, thankfully, which meant that he missed a few of the shows, which caused um, John Lennon to make kind of a snarky comment about, you know, Ravi's not there, so it should be a good show. I, I mean, it's, the other comment that I love by Lennon is he's on the radio in New York, and he plays Gravy Train by Splinter, and he goes, yeah, I heard this yesterday. I thought it was George. The, the other Beatles are certainly listening to what Harrison was doing. Ringo, I mean, Ringo helped him with Dark Horse on a few albums. And so Ravi had the health scare. Luckily, it was nothing because Ravi went on for many more years and produced many great albums, including, as I say, Chance of India, which has gone on to become, you know, made number two on the Billboard World Music Charts, which is pretty remarkable given that that particular week. And I think I mentioned in the book is that it's all Irish. I get, and I love Irish music, but the, the top 10, eight of them are Irish, and then you get this Indian album there. It's great. I love it. <laughs> we should talk a bit about, about George himself. Again, most listeners will know that George starts to release his own albums on, on Dark Horse. I'm curious to see what you think about whether or not being on his own label changed George's sound, changed the way that he approached promotion etc etc how different do you think those late 70s albums were to the early 70s albums that's a great question really good question because and i'm going to be controversial here i think some of his best work was done when he was on his dark horse label Hmm. harrison unlike mccartney and even ringo he saw promotion in a certain way he was still seeing how you promote a record like in 1968 or 69 and as you know things had changed drastically by the mid-70s. So he wasn't keeping up with how do we promote. But when he promoted his first album on Dark Horse, 33 and a third, he really promoted that album. He did interviews. There's a wonderful Dark Horse album of, of a dialogue with him talking about the album. He appeared in France. He appeared in Canada. He, he really tried to sell the album. Two very strong singles here, three in, in England. And I think his music changed because he felt the freedom to do what he's always wanted to do. Plus, he had his own studio, and that meant he didn't have to pay EMI big bucks. He could just go and keep doing what he wanted to do. And it was a state-of-the-art studio from from all the people I spoke to who were recorded there. I think things changed on his own label when Warner Brothers said, you can't put it somewhere in England as it is. You need to change it up. And I think that changed Harrison. I think it changed how he viewed promotion, the whole music industry. I think he changed at that point. 
the, the follow-up album to that is Gontrapa, which he refused to do any interviews. He refused promo films. He did zero promotion for the album, and, and it showed on the charts. Great album. I tell people to go listen to Gontrapo every chance I get. Mm. I think he he felt the freedom to kind of not have to do My Sweet Lord Part 2. The George Harrison, George Harrison album is such a brilliant album, and it's very acoustic, and it's very laid back. Has that kind of Southern California feel, but yet, because it's recorded in England, it has that kind of overall production vibe, and, and, and it, it's a beautiful, like, faster to me. It, it stands as one of my favorite George Harrison songs. And why that wasn't a hit is mm. anyone's guess, because that should have been a monster hit single. It's catchy. When I met my wife, she had never heard it, and that's her favorite song. Like She was mm. like, how did this not get played? I go, I mean, blow away, by the way, I'm proud to say, made it to the top five here in Canada. It somehow caught the attention of Canadians. And the promo film is great, by the way. Go on YouTube and find it. It's, it's hilarious. But it, Harris, I think, really stopped caring about commerce until maybe Cloud Nine. But even Cloud Nine, after that, that was his last studio album, solo album, uh, until Brainwashed. I think he wanted to do what he wanted to do. He had things to write about. and he, And the other thing, too, about having his own label was that he took five years between Gontrapo and Cloud9. Record labels wrote and saying, hey, come on, George, let's go. He didn't have that pressure. That didn't mean he didn't do anything in those five years because he did quite a bit. I mean, I didn't even go into handmade films because that's a whole book of itself. But mm. um, he had handmade films. He was working with a number of artists. So he was a busy guy, but he liked kind of not being front and center. So he was more than happy to take a few years off, play guitar for people, I, I'll say to to this day, 33 and a third is one of his best albums. It tends to be the album I go to. And somewhere in England, I love his Hoagie Carmichael covers. <laughs> These are the albums that kind of go bomb my turntable. Mm. Sometimes, you know, more than, say, Material World or um, All Things Was Past. Great albums. I'm not knocking them. I love them. But I, I, can, I tend to go to the 80s Harrison, you know? I think the promotion is interesting. There's a website that, thebeatlesonfilm.com, which is an amazing yeah. website that someone somewhere has archived every single Beatle and solo Beatle TV appearance anywhere in the world. And oh. they do it by years. If you click on Paul McCartney, 1989, there is every single on that Flowers on the Dirt tour, every single news appearance interview, there's pages and pages and pages. If you click on George Harrison, 1982, there's nothing. There's no TV appearance. 81, there's nothing. And around Cloud 9, 87, 88, he does appear on, as we know, on a lot more TV shows and, and radio shows, magazines, et cetera, et cetera. But it's amazing that there's Gontropo came out. I don't know if there was even a even a magazine interview. Was there a radio? Was there anything for Gontropo? I scoured the internet looking for you know, I'm I'm I I'm writing right now a book on, on Ringo in the 70s, and I'm finding interviews he did for all of his albums. There was nothing about Gontrapo. I mean, there was reviews. There was a couple of print ads with the cover, but he didn't do any interviews. He didn't issue press releases. There was no video for Wake Up My Love, which if you think about it, if he had done something for Wake Up My Love, that would have been a monster hit, but mm. he didn't do anything. It just kind of came out. And, you know, radio at the time was you're only as big as your last hit. And what are you doing for me? Radio is very, to this day, is kind of like, give us an ID, say something, do an interview. He wasn't playing the game. And mm -hmm. um, as a result, a song that should have been a monster 
I remember when when Wake Up My Love came out, I was watching a, a baseball, a football game, and they have these music between commercials, and they used Wake Up My Love, and I thought, oh yeah, this could be a monster hit. Nothing after that, you know. And I think that was a conscious decision on his part. I think he, I don't think the single I Really Love You got released in England. It, mm. it came out here again to know, although college radio jumped on it. Like when I was working at a college station, we it went top 10 because people thought it was the weirdest song. <laughs> Astro, you know, yeah, that's Harrison. Um, there was no interviews. He did, and, and even for somewhere in England, very scant. I think there was maybe one or two, but... Oddly enough, though, he would do an interview for Time Bandits, or he did interviews for um, uh, Shanghai Surprise or through Handmade Films, but he didn't promote his own albums until oh. Cloud Nine. But if you look at Cloud Nine, by the end of the last few interviews, he's getting a wee bit snarky. Yeah, because if you look at those those 87 ones, he's quite bright, he's quite chirpy, um, but you're right, in those later ones into 88, 89, he's very dismissive about the Beatles. He He plays with the um with the interviewer a little bit he's he's a little bit mildly surly i mean nothing compared to other well-known people that are notoriously rude to interviewers but it is interesting you can clearly see that he's he grows quite tired whereas of course paul is the opposite and has got as much time too much time maybe to talk to people it's fat i love looking at the differences in the four of them um and yeah george by that point as you say he's he's tired of it already he didn't even do interviews for his live in japan no this was a great opportunity to come out, have Eric do some interviews, have him. He just didn't. I think he was tired. You know, it just was one of those mysteries where I think he just had had enough of the interviews, wanted to go back home, get to his garden, which I respect him for. I I, I wouldn't criticize him, but you're right. Let's talk a little bit about, let's, let's flip a little bit backwards and talk sure. about another group on Dark Horse. You alluded to earlier, Attitudes, who turned out to be quite a star-studded band. Uh, tell us a little bit about them and about how they got involved in Dark Horse. They were kind of the the Steely Dan or the uh, uh, Toto of Dark Horse. They were session musicians in L.A. David Foster had had a big hit in North America called Wildflower. Uh, he was part of another band called Skylark. But they were all session musicians. And they all worked for Harrison at various times. They got to wanting to jam with Jim Keltner. So they used to have these jam sessions uh, at a studio in L.A., and that led to the band Danny Kuchmar, who, of course, played with um, Carol King and with Carly Simon and just about everybody in L.A. Uh, Paul Stallingworth, who is a bassist, singer, and David Foster, who went on to the hugest, you know, and he and he reflects back on the attitudes and said, you know, if we had done some gigs around L.A., if we'd made ourselves available to do interviews, if we promoted the record, he doesn't blame Harrison. He's very clear that they were kind of like, no, 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 we don't do that kind of thing. But you're right. It's a star-studded band. And, of course, Jim Keltner on drums. And you look at this band now, and they were another one that Olivia loved. And, in fact, prior to Dark Horse kind of being resurrected, she made sure that a, a kind of a compilation of their two albums was released for download on iTunes and, and was for streaming. Clearly a favorite of George. This was kind of jazzy pop rock. Sometimes some of the... B-sides were kind of experimental. They were kind of cool. Interesting albums. I mean, Ringo played on their Good News album. The The sad story about Attitudes is that their, their single Sweet Summer Music was actually going into the charts in 75, 76. But as we all know, when Harrison left A&M and went to Warner Brothers, A&M basically just said, that's enough. We're not doing anything. And the single 
was if you look at the charts, it was climbing, and then all of a sudden it's off the charts because no one can buy it. Radio wouldn't play it. Mm. A year later, they reissued it on Warner Brothers. But the year is a long time in the life of radio, and no one really cared at that point. It kind of died a very painful death. But they should have, again, it's that should have been. Their second album, Good News, there was very little promotion. There was, again, they, they try to find interviews of these guys. There's interviews now where they talk about attitudes, but at the time they weren't, and I don't know what that was all about. I don't know if it was, it was, they just didn't know what to, and Kellner's always shied away from interviews to begin with, but um, they they are now regarded as a, it's kind of like a super group. They're like, like Toto was a, a, a band comprised of studio musicians that made it very big, but they also toured. They also did interviews. They also, they made themselves available. They're of course artists. Now, having said that, a group like Stair Steps wanted to tour, but there was no money to put them on tour. So, so it's an interesting story, but attitudes, you're quite right. They're star-studded. And and um, David Foster talks about them in his book and uh, has talked about them in interviews. And he's, I think he's proud of the music they did, but he's he's he said, I'm not surprised it didn't sell because no one, if you don't know what's out, no one's going to buy it. And it didn't get a lot of radio plays. So. George ends up being, you will correct me if I'm wrong, but he ends up being the only artist left on the label by 79. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of, how that happened and how George reacted to that happening. I'm going to go back for a second, if that's okay. 74 to 76 were two very busy years for George. Three albums, a tour, he sets up a label, he produces Ravi's album, two albums, he produces Splinter, works on Splinter's second album. He's really busy. And then he kind of comes to a screeching halt in 77, takes a breath, and I think that Warner Brothers weren't too happy with the lack of sales, the three non-George Harrison albums that were released on the label, Dark Horse through Warner Brothers. Again, Harrison tried like mad to get a third Splinter album. He, he hired a session writer, very famous producer, uh, Norbert Putnam, and all the ingredients were there, but Splinter weren't happy with it. So they when they would tour, they wouldn't even do songs off that album. They were doing their own stuff. So I think he was relieved. I think he he had every good intention, but by 79, he's he's with Olivia. They have a child. Unfortunately, his father died in 77, 78. I think he's just tired. He's had enough. And he understands that running a record company is a lot more work than than maybe he envisioned. And he talks about how he felt sometimes the musicians weren't helping him out. He'd get calls at two in the morning and can we have more money and all that kind of stuff? And and I could understand someone thinking that the Beatles, you would think that they would just have an endless bank supply, but they didn't. I mean, they, well, maybe Paul does, but mm. Harrison, I think, was relieved. And I think he was happy to just kind of have his own label for his own records. As I said, in this, you know, he didn't even put Chance of India out on Dark Horse. Now, he did a box set for Ravi, for Ravi's anniversary. And I think it was in... Uh, 96 and um he did it in partnership with, with uh, capital records guardian records but if you look at the box set it's dark horse and guardian that was because they released the two shankar albums in that box set i think he was happy he was tired i, I really do I, I i can't imagine the pressure he was under and also don't forget too 76 as the lawsuit comes to a head with my sweet lord he's so fine He's, he's sued by A&M Records. He has to settle that lawsuit. At one point, he's being interviewed by Tony Wilson 
in Manchester. And he says, I feel more like a lawyer than I do a musician these days. I mean, it's very funny, but it's a sad statement. And, and then, of course, he goes on Eric Idle's Rutland Weekend Television and does the pirate song. 79, he was kind of tired. It's reflective in the album, George Harrison. I think he's focuses on the usual spirituality, but he also focuses on Olivia, his new child. It's it's a very happy album. It's a very positive album hmm. compared to Extra Texture, which is kind of his blood on the tracks where you're kind of like, oh, things aren't going well. Hmm. 33rd, third, there's even like this song, which is funny, but has that undertone of, eh, is it really funny? I'm like Paul. George didn't need to always be in the limelight. And I'm not, crit I, I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not criticizing McCartney. I love him dearly. But, you know, George and Paul are different people. And he he just was happy to kind of sit back and let the, you know, look at the garden and, and F1 and his family. And he just slowed down a bit. I think that's what yeah. freaked him out about nine was Austin. He was back in the, and, and the traveling Wilburys too. He was kind of caught up in all that. That's why I think he took a step back. Sadly, because I think I wish he'd done more albums in the 80s and 90s. I mean, that's my only wish is that there had been more George Harrison solo albums because they're so bloody good. You mentioned, for instance, the, the Chance album with Ravi that wasn't on on Dark Horse. Right. What was the kind of state of the label through the late 80s and, and through the 90s? If he'd done a solo album in 98, would that have been on Dark Horse? Oh, yeah. It's funny because uh, one of the last things he did on Dark Horse was that album called The Dark Horse Years. And there was some question as to the cover because the cover is a bit, it doesn't stand out. It's very blue and black. Dark Horse is still running. His last album, uh, Brainwashed, came out through Dark Horse Records through Capitol. But I think he would have continued to put out records on Dark Horse. I don't know that he would have signed anyone again. I mean, I think he would have just done his own music, but I don't think it was quite... I was always surprised Wilburys didn't come out on Dark Horse, but came out on Wilbury recordings. So I think it was a favor to all five members of the band that no one really, no one really owned it. Not one member of the band owned it. I think if it came out on Dark Horse, it would have been seen as a George Harrison album. Hmm. Good idea not to put it on Dark Horse, but at the same time, I was I remember buying it thinking, ah, oh, miss that Dark Horse. <laughs> I remember seeing in the theater seeing Shanghai Surprise at the very end. It's a soundtrack available on Dark Horse Records and Tapes. Of course, it never materialized. I was so sad because I thought that was another avenue for George. Is all those films on, on Handmade could have had soundtracks on Dark Horse. And that would have been so cool to, to Long Good Friday, soundtrack on Dark Horse. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, I think George, I don't know that he thought in those terms. Like, I think he kept those two things very separate, except for Time Bandits. But I think he kept those things very separate. It's funny because the Time Bandit soundtrack finally came out a couple of years ago. It's not even on Dark Horse. It's on some other label. I give up. So you mentioned there that obviously Dark Horse is still very much with us now. Tell us a little bit about the kind of state of the label. What's the, the latest with Dark Horse? Danny's done a very good job. Olivia's kind of given it to him to run. Initially, it was it was interesting because the first act or artist that came to Dark Horse was Joe Strummer, uh, and he and and they got the rights to Joe Strummer's solo albums. They initially came out streaming only. Now they're coming out on vinyl and CD, and a really beautiful box set of Strummer came out too. And then they signed like Billy Idol, which I didn't see that coming. A million, you could have asked me a million artists that was not up the top five. Cat <laughs> Stevens is now with Dark Horse. They've also got the catalog for John Lord of uh, Deep Purple. And they've got some, some of Leon Russell's albums. 
and and that's they just put out an album two of them so far in vinyl and of course the big news this year all of harrison's catalog the entire catalog went to dark horse and danny has said quite clearly that this means there's going to be some box sets some limited edition eps singles i thought the all things was past box set is if it's any indication i think we're in for a treat with material world and dark horse I know fans, I've, I've seen it on Facebook, fans going, please release a, a concert from the Dark Horse tour because they, they were filmed and they were recorded. They were good. Like people seem to read and say, oh, he was terrible. No, they're actually quite good. So maybe this will free, free up Danny to kind of um, explore his dad's catalog. Interestingly, Danny's not on Dark Horse. He's on HOT Records, which is Henley on the Thames. May as well be Dark Horse. I think there's going to be some really cool things coming from Dark Horse. They just reissued Splinter's first album on vinyl again, which was nice to have. They've done Shankar Family and Friends. They've done um, Stair Steps, which was, it was like, wow. I Again, I thought, okay. But they sound good. They're beautifully packaged. It's nice to see that label again. And it's nice to see them in store. It's like, I like going to a record store and seeing Splinter. It's really sweet. You know, it's, it's a mm. nice feeling. My final question is, do you think that George has any kind of, regret do you think he had any kind of um do you think he made a mistake to start dark horse did you get any sense of whether or not he and, and maybe anyone else felt that it was a successful venture i don't think he ever regretted it i don't think he made a mistake i think he was proud of the music that got produced under that umbrella the, the word successful to me it, it's like it was successful in that would david foster have the career he's had without the attitudes it certainly gave him some credibility to keep moving up the ladder. You know, he gave, he, it was a very diverse label. This is a label that in its first year would release a you know British folk, Indian classical, you know, rock and roll, blues album. I mean, there, he was looking at all genres. He had every right to be proud of what he accomplished on Dark Horse. And I think he had every right to be proud of what he did on Apple because Apple's a fantastic label as well. I, I really don't think anyone ever regretted him doing it. I think if there was any regrets, it was it wasn't embraced by the public as much as it should have been. And I think the whole thing with AM Records, how it kind of went from AM to Warner Brothers, not in a good way, kind of tainted it a wee bit. And there was a lot, you know, lots of reasons for that happening, mainly that he didn't pr produce an album for Dark Horse AM and they basically sued him. But uh, I think he, he should be proud and Danny should be proud of the label too. I think he's representing it really well. And I don't, I think if they were not, the, I don't know if these things would be out right now. Mm. I think they might have wound it down and maybe, you know, like factory records said, here, take your music, do what you want with it. They haven't done that. They're, they're kind of trying to promote. I look forward to some new signings. I've read somewhere and I can't remember exactly where, but there's a couple of new bands that Danny's signing to the label. That's exciting. I think mm. that's what Harrison would love. So it was successful in many ways, not successful commercially, except for his own solo records. But what can you do? It's a time. It was the time. It was everything. That's a great way to, to finish. So Aaron, thanks so much for your time. Uh, the book is Dark Horse mm -hmm. Records, story of George Harrison's post-Beatles record label. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.